0: Let us pray together. Father, Your Gospel is indeed Your power for the salvation of all who believe. May Your Gospel's power be seen and known here today. May Your Gospel run and be glorified that sinners might be forgiven and set free. This we pray in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We live in a culture where more and more people simply have no idea what Christians believe. They have no idea what the Christian faith is about. Uh, I don't think I really have to convince you, this is true of the mainstream media, uh, which is obviously out of touch with Christians, the journalists and the talking heads uh, don't understand how we think or why we live the way we do. There's constant misunderstanding. Uh, A lot of people in our culture are simply ignorant of what Christians believe. It may not be their fault. It may just be they've never encountered the Christian message. They've never been presented with the actual Christian gospel, and so they know virtually nothing about it. Uh, I know the story of an Episcopalian priest who was in an urban area and was uh, trying to evangelize his neighborhood and got to know an unchurched family. Uh, that lived close by, and he invited them over to the church just to take a look, not on a Sunday, but just to tour the church, to tour the church building, thinking this might be helpful. Now, you need to know his church building had a crucifix in its sanctuary, not just a cross like what we have, uh, but a crucifix, of course, is a cross with a representation of Jesus on the cross. As they walked into the sanctuaries, he walked in with this family, the teenager in the family asked, What's that guy doing hanging up there on the plus sign? Okay, he thought the cross was a plus sign and wanted to know what that guy was doing hanging from the plus sign. Okay, that's ignorance. It may not be his fault. Uh he simply hasn't heard the Christian message. Uh but others in our culture uh know quite a bit more about the Christian message. They they know uh something about the Christian gospel. They're simply hostile to it. Indeed, openly hostile to it. Uh, The comedian George Carlin, who passed away a few years ago, uh, once said of Christians, he said, Christians worship a dead Jew on a stick. He said, I would never want to be a member of a group whose symbol was a guy nailed to two pieces of wood. That's mocking. That's mockery. But George Carlin was certainly not the first To mock Jesus. Certainly not the first to mock Jesus on the cross. In the crucifixion, Jesus' enemies mock him. They mock him as he hangs on the cross. The whole story of the crucifixion is filled with mockery. But this is what's interesting, and this is what we're going to see in Mark's Gospel this morning. This is mockery with a twist. Because what they intend as mockery turns out to be the truth. Mark 15 opens with Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. This really sets the scene for the whole chapter. Shows you what the main theme is going to be. Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and Pilate asks Jesus the key question. Are you the king of the Jews? That's what this whole chapter is about. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus does not answer it first. But as this chapter in Mark's Gospel unfolds, we get a very clear answer. An answer to that question rings out loud and clear. Yes, Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the promised Messiah. More than just being king of the Jews, he's actually king of the nations. He's king of the cosmos. He hasn't been called king yet yet in the Gospel. In this chapter, six times Jesus is identified as King. Sometimes mockingly. And yet as we're going to see, there's a twist to this mockery. It actually reveals the truth. See, for Mark, the crucifixion is a coronation and a victory. That's really the theme of this chapter. Jesus is being crowned as King and in being crowned, He is winning His greatest victory. On the cross, Jesus becomes king and he tramples his enemies underfoot. In Mark 15, we find Jesus is mocked by everyone. Representatives of the whole human race are here present to mock Jesus. The Romans mock him and the Jews mock him. So you've got Jews and Gentiles mocking Jesus. Jesus together. You've got political leaders and religious leaders, church and state represented in the mockery. You've got soldiers and commoners and criminals mocking Him. All of humanity is joining together in the blasphemy. It's as if the whole world has come together. The whole world has united together to make a mockery of Jesus. But here's what Mark shows us. This mockery turns out to be ironic. For what they think is a joke turns out to be the very truth of God. It is the mockers who are mocked in the end. Pilate hands Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. But before they take him off to crucify him, they're going to have some fun at his expense. They know Jesus has been put on trial for claiming to be a king. And so they engage in some royal mockery. There's a whole garrison of troops here, about 600 men. They come together in the praetorium, which is their military headquarters. And they engage in a kind of mock coronation liturgy. We sang Psalm 45 this morning. Psalm 45 is a kingly coronation liturgy, a royal coronation liturgy. What the soldiers do here is they engage in a mock coronation. A mock coronation Liturgy. They clothe him with purple, which is a royal color. It is the color of kings, at least in the ancient world. It was the color of kings. The soldiers twist a crown, because everything has to have a crown, right? But it's a crown of thorns. And of course, the thorns remind us of Genesis 3, where thorns come into the world as a sign of the curse, as a manifestation of the curse and of death. And so we see here what Jesus is going to do. He's being made king, he's being crowned, but as he's crowned king, he's a king who bears the curse for his people. He's going to serve his people by suffering under the curse on their behalf, because that's what all good kings do. A faithful king, biblically at least, in the Bible, God's definition of a king is one who serves his people. Kings should be servants, and that's what Jesus is going to do here. He's going to bear the curse for his people, the thorns. Show us that.
1: Of course, in Israel,
0: it's not only kings who wore crowns, but the high priest also wore a crown as well. And so Jesus will die not only as a king, he's about to ascend his throne, the throne of the cross, But he's also being recognized as high priest. And as high priest, he's about to go into the sanctuary and sprinkle his own blood, the blood of the sacrifice, his own blood on the altar. Make atonement, make a covering for the sins of his people. So all this is happening. They don't intend this, but this is what's actually happening. They begin to pay mock homage to him, saluting him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They give him a reed as a scepter because, of course, all kings have scepters. He's saying about that in Psalm 45. All the ancient prophecies about Israel's king, Israel's Messiah, talk about his scepter. Isaiah 11 says he will have a scepter of iron in his hand to rule over the nations. But what do they do here? They take that kingly scepter, this reed, and they beat him over the head with it. Again, to make a mockery of his kingship and to show we're Rome. And we're dominant. We're the ones who are in charge. And of course, in beating Jesus over the head with the reed and mocking Him as King of the Jews, they're not only mocking Jesus, they're really mocking Israel. Israel, because Israel claims to be the people of God. And Israel claims to be the one through whom the Savior of the world and the King of the world will come. They're mocking Israel right along with Jesus. They spit on Jesus. This is obviously insulting, and really you wouldn't have to say anything more about that. But given the whole coronation scene that's happening here, I know this is kind of disgusting to think about, but this is really a pseudo-anointing. See, every king, in being made king, was anointed. He had oil poured over him. When priests were ordained, when they were consecrated to office, they not only had oil, they also had water poured over them. Well, here they spit on Jesus. They're doing it in derision, but it's a kind of counterfeit or, or alternative anointing. So you've got Jesus being crowned and anointed here. Crowned with thorns and anointed with spit. The soldiers even kneel before Jesus to worship him. But of course we know from Philippians 2, at the last day, every knee will bow before Jesus. This is a parody of what's to come. They don't know this, that they're acting out prophetically what everyone will do at the last day, but here it is, they are. They're kneeling before the King. See, their mockery is intended as a joke. It's just for fun. It's to make fun of this guy who thought he was a king. But their mockery actually reveals the true inner meaning of the crucifixion. Their coronation liturgy is intended as cruel mockery. They intend it as an anti-coronation But in fact, it is a coronation. The crucifixion of Jesus really is His exaltation. This really is how He will establish His kingdom and inaugurate His reign. You know, one thing we need to understand about crucifixions in the ancient world and ancient Rome, crucifixions were generally reserved only for the worst of criminals, of course, but especially for criminals who had tried to exalt themselves, who you could say had tried to lift themselves up to a place they shouldn't be for those who are trying to to climb up the social ladder, put themselves in a position of authority they had no right to. And so they would crucify those who sought to rise above their proper station in rebellion. That's certainly why Barabbas was slated to be crucified, and the other men who were crucified with Jesus, they're called rebels or revolutionaries. They had exalted themselves against the empire. And whenever somebody did this, the cross was Rome's way of saying, okay, you want to be lifted up? Fine. We'll lift you up. You want to exalt yourself? Fine. We'll exalt you. We'll exalt you up. We'll lift you up on this tree. Because Rome wanted to show the one crucified that, hey, this is just a pretender. This is just a usurper. This is a rebel who has no rights to what he's trying to take for himself. Crucifixion lifted up the victim in a parody of his own self-exaltation. And that's what they think they're doing with Jesus. Here's a man who said he was king who's going to be lifted up. Fine, we'll lift you up. Verse 20 tells us when the mockery was done, they took off the purple and they put his own clothes back on him. But that was only momentary. momentarily was he reclothed? A few minutes later, Uh, We find in verse 24, when he is taken to be crucified, the soldiers gamble to decide who will get his clothing. Which means they have stripped Jesus naked. Even as Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed in the garden, Jesus is stripped naked that he might bear our shame. But as they gamble for his clothes, and again, they don't know they're doing this. They don't know they're acting out a divine script. But they are actually fulfilling the prophecy, the words of Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, the psalmist says, as he's describing all the things his enemies do as they come against him, they divide my garments among themselves, for my clothing they cast lots. You see, Psalm 22 is the script. Psalm 22, yes, is about the suffering of the psalmist. But then the psalm turns and it becomes about His exaltation and His victory. His royal victory. The suffering one in Psalm 22 is the King who will reign. And so by giving us this little detail, this tidbit Mark is again saying, this is the script that's being acted out. Everything's going according to plan. Jesus is really the one who is in charge. They think they're mocking Him. Actually, they really are inaugurating His kingdom. Psalm 22 is coming to pass. And then they put an inscription above his head after they nail him to the cross. The inscription, of course, reads, the King of the Jews. They intended this, obviously, with some sarcasm. Uh, It was common to actually uh, affix above the head of the one crucified some kind of sign or plaque that would describe the charges, that would give the accusation that had been brought against this man. To explain why this man died so people passing by would know. Okay, if I don't want to be crucified, I shouldn't do that. Jesus claimed to be a king. He's put to death accordingly. This is the reason for his execution. This is what they're thinking. How dare this man claim to be a king? Doesn't he know that Caesar is king? That Caesar alone has the power to deal out death and judgment, that Caesar will decide who lives and who dies. Caesar can give life and Caesar can take it away, and anyone who claims to be a king has set himself up as Caesar's rival and must answer to Caesar. The sign is the accusation, but again, it's intended as mockery. What is it in reality? In reality, this plaque is a public proclamation of the truth. Jesus is indeed a king, and that's why he died. See, Jesus' great crime was simply being the Christ. He didn't die for any other reason. They couldn't stand for him to be king. They didn't want him as king, and so they decided he must die. So they think of the cross as an anti-coronation. They think of it as a takedown of this would-be king. But in reality, this is how Jesus is becoming king. Jesus dies that the kingdom might come. Jesus will die on the cross so God can keep His word, so He can make good on all His promises to seek and save the lost, to restore His creation, so God's people can be forgiven, and so God's purposes for the cosmos can be fulfilled. This is how the kingdom of God is being established. His death is a royal death. He's doing it again. What all the great kings do, dying for his people. Mark wants us to understand, Jesus is not dying as a helpless victim. He is a king acting in power. And Jesus has done all these power acts, all these these powerful actions throughout the Gospel, this is his most powerful action of all. This is his greatest act of conquest. He is laying down his life to rescue his bride from sin and death because there is no other way. See, that was settled back in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, Father, take this cup from me, but... Not my will, but yours, be done. It was then and there in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus determined he must go through with this plan. He must die. He must offer himself as a sacrifice because there's no other way. There's no other way to save his people. And Mark tells us here too, when Jesus and this is a little bit further on than what I read, but when Jesus breathed his last, the veil and the temple was torn from top to bottom. And there was a Roman centurion, one of these Roman soldiers, a a guard there standing at the foot of the cross. And and he now, because the veil has been torn, sees the truth. You see this in verses 38 and 39. When the veil is torn, he sees Jesus for who he is, and he confesses the truth. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God of God. And when the centurion confesses Jesus to be Son of God, Son of God just means King. Augustus Caesar claimed to be the Son of God. He took that title because it is a royal title. It's true in the Old Testament as well. Israel's King was always referred to as the Son of God. The centurion here is confessing Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the true King. He is the true Son of God. That very morning, this centurion had been one of the soldiers, jeering at Jesus, mocking him, spitting on him, hitting him, laughing at him. This centurion is most likely the one who drove the nails into his hands and feet, since he is obviously the one who is in charge of the crucifixion. But when Jesus died, and the veil is torn, he sees something he hadn't seen before. And he realizes he needs to take another look at this man on the cross. And he reverses course. His whole world is turned upside down. His mockery is turned inside out. Instead of taunting Jesus, he now confesses Jesus. Instead of despising Jesus, he now trusts Jesus. Instead of poking fun at Jesus' claims, he now believes those claims. He's a centurion. He has a hundred men under his command. He is a professional executioner. And here he looked at this naked man, helpless, stripped, bloodied, beaten, forsaken, nailed to a tree. And he says, this is the Son of God. This is my King. He says, Jesus is Lord. All of a sudden he realizes the Romans have unwittingly coronated the world's true king. He realizes all their mockery was actually reality. It's interesting. This centurion is the first human in Mark's Gospel to make this full confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Halfway through Mark's Gospel in chapter 8, Peter halfway got it. He didn't confess Jesus as the son of God but he at least confessed Jesus as the Christ as the Messiah the anointed one but then Peter could not wrap his head and his heart around the notion of a crucified messiah and so when Jesus started talking about his suffering Peter rebuked him now at the end of the gospel an unlikely figure perhaps the most unlikely figure of all a roman soldier a man who has played a in nailing Jesus to the tree. He sees Jesus crucified. He sees the way He died. And He makes the good confession. A confession that goes beyond the confession of Peter. He's the first human in Mark's Gospel to confess Jesus as the Son of God. Do you see what's happened here? The Romans, the soldiers, they were laughing at Jesus. They were laughing at God. But God gets the last laugh. God will not be mocked in the end precisely because God allowed Himself to be mocked in the middle. See, in the end, all that mockery turns back on the mockers as Jesus' true identity comes out. But you know, the Romans are not the only mockers here. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the Jews get in on it as well. They mock Jesus and even tempt Him. And if you can think of their words to Jesus on the cross really as the last three temptations of Jesus really echoing the satanic temptations Jesus faced in the wilderness. All their temptations come down to the same thing. They tempt Jesus to come down from the cross. But we need to look at this a little more widely and see what's going on here. It says as they passed by, they wagged their heads at Him. This is part of their taunting. They're wagging their heads. or shaking their heads at him. But they don't, again, realize what they're doing any more than the Romans realized what they were doing. This wagging of their heads recalls the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem where centuries before, the pagan invaders, the Babylonians, had come into Jerusalem and, and destroyed the city. And after the city fell, the prophet Jeremiah lamented in Lamentations 2 all who pass along the way shake their heads at the fallen city and say, this was the joy of the earth? In other words, how can this have ever been the joy of the earth? It's just in, in ruins. It's in shambles. The city's been shattered. There's nothing left of it. In Jeremiah 18, he says, everyone who passes by the city will shake his head at its ruin. Jesus hanging on the cross is like the fallen city. He's like Jerusalem in ruin. Jerusalem rose again. And Jesus will too. And the Jews have unwittingly put themselves in the place of the pagan mockers who wagged their heads, who shook their heads at the holy city, laughing at the devastated city. See, this is their logic. Their mockery really comes down to one thing. If Jesus is so great, if He's really a king, if He's really the Messiah, shouldn't He save Himself? Shouldn't He come down from the cross? They make this mocking request, thinking it's impossible. But saying to him, hey look, if you're really the Messiah, save yourself. Come down from the cross. This has been the satanic temptation for Jesus all along, to avoid the cross. We know from Matthew and Luke, their accounts of how Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. This is exactly how Satan tempted them. Basically, Satan said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, you shouldn't have to suffer. So you shouldn't have to, for example, suffer hunger, so turn stones to bread. Because if you're the Messiah, you should never have to go hungry. You should never have to fast. But all throughout Jesus' ministry, Satan has been trying to divert Him from the cross to make Him take a detour. To give up on the pathway that will lead to the cross. So for example, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' family tries to get him to come home and stop getting into so much trouble. He's just, he's just getting into trouble everywhere he goes. And this is a temptation for Jesus to abandon the pathway that will lead to the cross. Mark 8, I already made mention of this, Peter tries to divert Jesus from the cross. And when Peter says, this can't happen to you, you can't suffer and die in Jerusalem, Jesus says to Peter, you're speaking for Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. You become Satan's mouthpiece, Satan's spokesman. Even here in Mark 15, Pilate tried to release Jesus. He tried to let Jesus go so He wouldn't have to die on the cross. Satan wants nothing more than for Jesus to save Himself to come down from the cross. Because Jesus' whole mission of saving the world will fail if He comes down from the cross. Look at this a little more closely. Verses 29 and 30. The pastor's by, blaspheme Him. They say, You who destroy the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Verse 31, the priests and the scribes say the same thing. He saved others. He cannot save Himself, let Him descend from the cross that we may see and believe. For them, this is the test of Messiahship. This is how Jesus can prove He is Messiah is by coming down from the cross. And even those hanging on the crosses next to Him on either side revile Him in the same painted way. But again, their words are full of unintended irony. Just like the actions of the Romans were full of unintended irony, so it is with the Jews. They're insulting Jesus because they believe He's a failure. The cross proves He's not Messiah. The cross means He's finally been defeated. They say, look, you got one last chance to prove you're Messiah. Come down from there. Save yourself from that Roman cross, and then we will take your claims to kingship seriously. But so long as Jesus is on the cross, He is not being and doing what they know a Messiah should be. See, they know He can't be Messiah if He dies on a cross. But here's where it gets really, really ironic. They say to Jesus, You saved others! Why can't you save yourself? See, in truth, the only way Jesus can be Messiah and bring in His kingdom is by staying on the cross. The only way He can save others is by not saving Himself. That is the choice Jesus has had to make. See, what is Jesus doing on the cross? He is exercising His power to save precisely as He appears to be utterly powerless. Powerless. He is saving others precisely by losing Himself. These voices say you saved others, but you cannot save yourself. The truth is, He cannot save Himself and save others at the same time. The only way for Him to save others is to lose Himself. Oh, sure, he could have saved himself had he wanted to. He could have summoned a legion of angels at a moment's notice to take him down from the cross to take him off the tree. At any moment, he could have done that. But if he had saved himself, we would have been lost forever. See, this is the fork in the road Jesus faced. Will he lose his life in order to save others? Or will He save Himself and thus lose the world? He chose to stay. He chose to stay on the cross. Why did He choose to stay on the cross? He chose to stay on the cross for you and for me. For our sakes. For the sakes even of those who crucified Him. For the sakes of His enemies to save them. See, in the end, it was not the nails that kept Him on the tree. It was his life for sinners that kept him on the cross. By not doing what the Jewish mockers wanted him to do, he did what they most what they most needed him to do, which was to save their lives by losing his own in their cross. He loses his life for their sake that they might be saved. Think about this. At the time of Jesus' death, as He was hanging on the tree, no one, and I mean no one, saw what He was doing as a great heroic act. No one saw it as an act of sacrificial love to save sinners. No one appreciated No one praised Him or thanked Him for it. No one got it. No one understood what this was all about. They just saw another would-be Messiah, another pretend Messiah who had failed, and that was it. No one saw the cross for what it was, the greatest act of sacrificial love in the whole history of the cosmos. So what's that guy doing? Hanging on the plus sign? What is he doing hanging on the cross? He's becoming the king. He's becoming the savior. He is the Son of God, the King who suffers and serves and saves by laying his life down, who takes his bride's curse so she can go free. No, Mr. Carlin, Christians don't worship the dead Jew on stick. We worship King Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God in human form, who suffered and died and then rose again for our salvation to give us victory over death. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ is the one before whom every knee will bow at the last day. And this is why again and again, every time the New Testament speaks of the cross, it always, always, always celebrates the cross as a great victory, as the ultimate triumph. It's not a defeat. It's not even a defeat that gets reversed in the resurrection. It is a victory that leads to the resurrection. We read Hebrews 2 this morning. I think it captures this well. What does Hebrews 2 say, verses 14 to 17? Jesus died, we're told there, to destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. See, what does Jesus do on the cross? He shatters death. The cross is His victory as He crushes the devil underfoot. Goes on, He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, we come to participate in the cross and the cross sets us free to live a new kind of life. No longer enslaved to the fear of death, but now slaves of of Christ and of righteousness living a new kind of way. And it goes on in Hebrews 2, because He is a faithful high priest, He made propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation means He is our substitute who turned away wrath, who took the wrath and the curse we deserved. Again and again, the New Testament highlights the cross as victory. Jesus in His death defeated sin, death, death. And Satan. In fact, we can say Jesus died as our substitute so that He could win the victory over Satan because Satan's power over us consists primarily in the accusations He brings against us, especially as He uses the law of God to bring accusations against us. But Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross for us silences Satan's accusations. And a silenced accuser is a defeated accuser. And so Christ's cross has dealt Satan a fatal blow. As Jesus was enthroned on that tree, Satan was cast down. Why do you think the place where he's crucified is called Golgotha? It's called Golgotha because that's where David put Goliath's skull after he defeated him and beheaded him. He wasn't going to take something that unclean into the city. Of Jerusalem, So he put it in this hill outside the city. Jesus is taken outside the city and crucified There, What is under his feet as he is crucified? The skull of Goliath, who is the serpent, a representative of the serpent. He's fulfilling Genesis 3.15, crushing the head of the serpent as he dies on the cross. See, on the cross, Satan did his worst to Jesus. The principalities and powers took their best shot at Him. Jesus took the full brunt of sin's force. He drank the cup of the curse to the dregs. And out of that weakness of that man hanging on a cross emerged the greatest power of all, the greatest power in the whole history of the universe, a saving power. The power to forgive sins. The power of sacrificial and self-giving love. The power that overcomes death. At the cross, this power, a power greater than death, was unleashed. At the cross, Satan's power was spent. And his ultimate weapon, the weapon of death, was taken out of his hands forever. So Jesus' death is indeed the death of death. Jesus has dealt death a fatal blow. He has crushed the serpent's head. His death cancels out sin and vanquishes death. It crushes the devil. No, this is not what was expected. This is not how the story was supposed to go. The cross is foolishness to those who refuse to believe. The cross does turn all conventional wisdom upside down. It shows us God is the ironic God, the God of secrets and surprises, the God of twists and turns, the God of aha moments, the God of cliffhangers, and the God of unexpected happy dinner. Colossians 2, we also read from Colossians 2 this morning. It also drives this truth home about the cross, showing us the cross is victory. Paul tells us there in his death, Jesus not only canceled the debt of sin we owe, the debt we owe because of sin, so now whatever bill we owe because of sin has been stamped, paid in full on it with the blood of Christ. But Paul also tells us there that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, those demonic and human forces of darkness. And indeed, Christ has put them to open shame on the cross, triumphing over them, making a spectacle of them. And the word that's used there in Colossians 2 for his triumph, for this making of a spectacle of his enemies, describes actually what a Roman general would do after he had defeated a city. How he would take all the vanquished survivors and he would chain them up and and march them down Main Street as as prisoners of war to show, I have conquered, I have defeated this city, I have vanquished the foe. That is what Jesus did with Satan at the cross. He vanquished the foe. He chained Satan up and he marched him down Main Street to humiliate him and to show, I have won the victory. As 1 John 3 8 says, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The dark Lord and all his works have been destroyed. Satan has been defeated. There's a new sheriff in town, a new king. A king of light and love now sits on the throne. And that's why we Christians like to say the best story in the world is the story of the world. Okay, The best fairy tale of all is the factual history of this universe. The best story of all, the best story in the world is the story of the world because the story of the world is ultimately the story of Jesus and His victorious kingdom. As Jesus and His people go marching out from victory unto death. Jesus is victorious and He makes us share in His victory. Romans 12 says the saints conquered by the blood of the Lamb. The only way to be a winner is through the blood of Christ, through the blood of the Lamb. But in Christ Jesus, we are victorious. Paul in Romans 8 says we are more than conquerors. Satan has been mortally wounded. His demons have been trounced. Death has been routed. Hell is being plundered. Captive sinners are being forgiven and liberated. Creation is being restored. The whole cosmos is being redeemed. Christ is victorious and he makes us participants in his triumph as well. And so we get to hold the trophy. We get to bask in the glory of his victory. since stranglehold on us has been broken. And so we can now live lives of obedience, the kind of life we were designed for. See, when we begin to obey Jesus, it's like a fish being thrown back into the water. And now you begin, begin to live free the way you were made to live. And so the church can go forth in confidence and joy and victory. See, it's Sunday. Tomorrow, a new work week, a new school week begins. What's going to happen? there is no reason for you to not go forward with confidence and joy and victory. No reason why you can't go forth conquering and to conquer. Because you know that Jesus has won the victory. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, that was His coronation. As He hung there between heaven and earth, He was bridging heaven and earth, bringing them together, making them one. And from His perch of the cross, lifted up, He could look out in every direction, north, south, east, and west, and He could see the whole world He was dying for. And He could see the inheritance that He would claim as His own. As His own kingly possession. The nations are His. It is only a matter of time before He gets what He paid for. The cross means you do not have to fear. You have nothing to fear. You don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear the moment of your death. Because for every Christian, death is now a good death. Death is no longer a hole of darkness we fall into, but a door we pass through into greater glory and joy. Death's stinger has been pulled. Paul says death is the last enemy. And yes, it is. But death is not the last chapter. The story keeps on going. The cross and resurrection guarantee the story will go on and it will be a story of glory and of joy. Yes, But you will live again, conquering death. God will raise you up like Jesus at the last day. And you will live forever in God's new heaven and earth. In a world full of unspeakable joy and a peace that passes understanding. And so we, as the people of the cross, we can live obedient and fearless lives full of gladness and full of victory. What's that guy doing up there On the plus sign, He's reigning as King. He's winning the victory. John Calvin said it well. He said, there's no throne more stately and regal than that Roman jitties on which Jesus was crucified. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that the cross of Jesus Christ has become a throne. That the crucified one, the mocked one, is truly King, that the victim has become the victor, that he has overcome the world and conquered Satan. Make us to share in his victory day by day, Lord. This is our prayer in the strong name of Christ Jesus.